Good morning. We're in the middle of a series. We're looking through the latter chapters of the book of Romans. As we've said from week to week, Romans is divided into a couple of parts. The first part tells us what to believe. and The second part tells us how to behave. And as Paul goes into Romans 13, he moves from how we should behave in the church to how we should behave in the world. One of the questions that rises from individuals who are in the Bible, and especially those who try to retain a grace focus, is what about the commandments? What about obedience? Does an obedience matter? And that's where Paul directs our attention. When we talk about obedience, we're talking about love. Last week, we learned that love fulfills the law of Moses. This is what it says. Paul writes, it's not in your worship folder this week, just to refresh our memories. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the question we were talking in Bible study actually earlier, when you come to a place in the Bible, there are three things you do. Observation, interpretation, and application. Observation. You say, what does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? Application. What does it mean to me? Observation. What does it say? You, you just lift out the things that the passage mentions. Then once you do that, then you look in to interpret. What does it mean? And then you apply it. What does it mean to me? And in terms of trying to figure out what it means, you have to get some sense to, to why is he saying this? As we said last week and in previous weeks, a letter is something like this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Yeah, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. If you're trying to understand what's happening in this conversation, it's important to at least think of what's happening on the other side of the line, right? What questions are being asked? Why is Paul saying the things he's saying? So in this context, why is he talking about the commandments are summed up in this one command, love your neighbors yourself. What do you imagine is happening on the other side of the line that would cause Paul to have to clarify that? I think what's happening is that there are, again, Jewish religious elements. There 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. And naturally, to be a Jew in the Roman Empire, they had a very strong awareness of the Old Covenant and the commandments included in the Old Covenant. And what we have to remember is that the early church 
the Old Testament of the Bible is the only Bible that they had. They had the 39 books of the Old Testament. And so those individuals who had the strongest awareness of what the Bible said were those from Jewish backgrounds. And what they would do, they would bring naturally their experience of religion into the conversations that Paul was trying to have with the Gentile converts. Now, what we know is that there are ten commandments in the law of Moses, but there are 613 commands. 613 commands. And so, I think what's happening is these Gentile converts to Christianity are trying to figure out, how do you live this life? And and I think that what they might be doing is being hit by, well, what, what it means to live this life, it means to do 613 things. 613 things? And I think what's happening is that they are being kind of regulated to death. It's, it's easy, isn't it, when you're told this is what you need to do. And there's one or two things. They say that you can put one, two, or three things on your agenda and pretty much take care of it. Okay, here's what I want you to do, Christians. There are 613 things to remember. That would be a little bit heavy and somewhat confusing. I think that's what's happening. I think um, Jewish religious elements, and again, I'm not saying they're bad, but it's, it's not very helpful in terms of the impact are beating Gentile Christians over the head with the Ten Commandments and the 613 commands. They're being drowned in rules, and Paul cuts through the confusion. I'll tell you what. You have a pencil? I'll give you four words. You want to you boil this down in a way that you can take it with you? Okay, you got this? Five words. Ready? Not 613 commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember that? You might not remember 613 things, but you can remember five words. That's what Paul is doing so that they can, okay, yeah, boy, I can do that. I can do that. That's, that's, that's doable. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? As we said last week, it's applied, and I guess it could be an application that you can't love others if you don't love yourself. So, and that's, uh, but it seems more to be saying, do for others that which you do when you express love for yourself. How do you express love for yourself? And I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. So it's, it, it's not like one of these. <laughs> okay, that's on film. I'm toast. Okay. <laughs> You don't do that. That's not how you love yourself. How do you love yourself? You feed yourself. You clothe yourself. You care for yourself. It's very practical. Love, Jewish love, is more practical than emotional. When it's saying love your neighbor as yourself, it's not saying with respect to the, what they would have understood at that time, have nice feelings. It's do for your neighbor that which will care for your neighbor. If they are in a position where they're hurting, try to help them, clothe them, feed them, come to their aid. That's what it means to love in a Jewish culture. It's very practical. Um, we 
love ourselves by caring for ourselves, and we're commanded to love others as well, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves practically. That seems to be what it says. And what Paul goes on to say then is love is an unlimited debt. He says, and again, here's our text. I wanted to put verse 8 because verses 11 through 12, which we'll look at this morning, are tied to it. Paul writes, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. The point is that the debt of love is an unlimited debt. You can never say you've done it. You can never say you've done it. Now, this is where it's helpful to be more practical about love. Oh, sure, I have. I have nice feelings about everybody. There's nobody I hate. I love everybody. So if love is emotional, you might be able to say, yeah, I fulfilled that. Yeah, I, well, let me throw, yeah. But that's not what love means in this culture. To love is to actively come to the assistance of someone. And within that context, then, there are sins of commission and sins of omission. Do you agree? Sins of commission. To the Jew, they had a silver rule. Rabbi Hillel said, don't do anything harmful to your neighbor. That's what it meant to love somebody. Don't do anything harmful to your neighbor. Don't do a sin of commission. Injure. But Jesus didn't just leave it at that. That's the silver rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What that means, if you would like for somebody to have done something to you and they didn't, that would be an omission. Would you agree? They can do a commission to do something bad. An omission is not doing something good. And so what I think what we find biblically is that the command to love can be felt in the vicinity of commission, don't do anything bad, but omission. And that's a tough thing. There's all kinds of ways that we could serve others and we don't. Again, I'm not not pointing a big bony finger at you, then I'm not pointing at me. What I'm getting at is there are individuals, and I've really heard this, and it, it really puzzles me, in different branches of the church, there's individuals that really say this. I haven't sinned in five years. Really. Have any of you heard that? You can define sin in such a way that somebody says, yeah, you know, sin used to be a problem, but it's not a problem for me. And and so I think about that. And do you really understand the debt? Do you understand what the Bible is asking from us? That you love your neighbor as yourself? And that that can be expressed in sins of commission and omission, that if you fail to do for another what was in your power to do, that becomes a sin of commission, omission. You understand, I'm not dead. So what what he seems to say is that we have a continuing debt. The love account is never fully paid up. It's a debt we pay daily and yet always owe. See, there was a love thing there. Brett could have 
simply sat in his seat and not done anything about that humming. And he would not have done a sin of commission, but he knew where the honeymoon was coming from. And therefore, he went, and that was a very loving thing. Let's give her a hand. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, so, and that's on the tape as well. Okay. When we make love emotional, we blunt the force of the command. Just as long as you have nice feelings about people, you're all set. To not lend practical aid to, to another is is part of what he's getting at here. We can never say that we're not sinning. And that's you say, well, why are you pushing that, Mike? There are some things that adultery, check. Haven't done it. Murder, check. Lying, eh. White lies. Love. You're not going to check that box. You're not going to check that box. It's 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 the obligation and the weight that's always on our shoulders. Um, that's what he says. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt. Here's Romans 13. Let's read the text now. The continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And do this understanding of the present time. The hour has come for you to wake from up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The early Christians believed that Jesus' return was imminent. They thought he was going to come back any moment. Devotion was buoyed by the belief that Jesus' second coming was just around the corner. They looked around at those who were storing up treasures on earth, and they said, yeah, enjoy it while you can. Because they know they were storing up treasures in heaven. And in the beginning, it was, either to be mag- it was easy to be magnanimous and to feel good about that decision. I'm not putting up treasures on earth, putting up treasures in heaven. In the beginning, it was easy because Jesus could come back tomorrow or next month or next year. But he certainly isn't going to come back very soon. Jesus was going to be coming back any time now. And they're going to be left behind, but not me. But you know what ended up happening? Well, he hasn't turned. He hasn't come back yet. And those to whom Paul is writing, months turned into years. And years turned into decades. Those who stored up treasures on earth were able to draw from these stores and were able to provide things for their families that these individuals who made Christian commitments weren't able to provide. They thought they would have been long gone by now. But now they're not as young as they were. Their decision is hurting their family. We tend to think that if we make good Christian moral decisions, that we experience the benefit of those decisions on this side of eternity. And this is what Paul is encouraging them. When he talks about the night is almost over and the day has come, as time passed, Christians came to experience that life was passing them by, indeed had passed them by. The opportunities for advancement that would have occurred if they hadn't put God first are now in the past. 
and they can't recapture them. Some of us who are older understand some of the weight of decisions that we've made to follow Christ. Some who are younger, you might not be as aware of that. Uh, I'll be aware of that someday when I get older. It's one thing to begin well. It's quite another to finish well. Especially when you have to wait to reap the benefits. I think there's an implicit thing here. The motive for obedience cannot be limited to now. There are benefits to following Christ, but they're insufficient to fuel devotion. The... um, there are not enough now benefits to override now costs. I'm going to say that again. There are some benefits to choosing Christ, following after him. But the now benefits do not override the now costs. The costs are greater. The Christian life doesn't make any sense if heaven isn't real. And if eternal life is not sitting on the far side of death, it just doesn't make sense. And that's Paul's point. Hang in there. He encourages them. He said, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Persevering in love will mean putting aside deeds of darkness. Mark is going to get into that next week. This week we'll discuss the armor of light. And we'll deal with the influence of light. We probably won't get to both points in the the outline. There is an article from um, The Face of Grace. There are two articles I've included. We're not going to read both of them. We'll probably read part of one. The one on The Face of Grace, you might, if you're interested in that, it talks about John 3. We're not going to get to it during this message, but if there's something you want to write, but it has some things to say about the influence of light, and I'll leave that to read. I wanted to include that in the point. But let's let's look at the um, the influence of light. When Paul talks about, Paul tells us things to do, which are imperatives. Imperatives are commands. But Paul never leads with an imperative. He never says, do this, until he has first said, because this is true. There are commands in the Bible, and Paul has a lot of them, but he doesn't lead with a command. What he'll lead with is a statement of fact. This is true, and then he'll say, therefore, do this. And we find the same thing. You are children of light. That's a statement of fact. Through faith in Christ... You are children of light, therefore, act as children of light. Um, And that's the way Paul tells us how to do things. Become in your behavior what you are in your being. You are children of light. Let your lives reflect this fact. When we talk about light, what we're talking about is the life of God, the glory of God. You remember what happened when... Moses was on Mount Sinai. God appeared, and and God's presence was evidenced by light. And what we know about light, light is glory. Light and glory, they have the same sense. When Moses went up on the mountain and the glory of God shone, and what ended up happening, that glory did a couple things, and this is what we learn about light. 
light or glory emanates from God. Glory comes from God. It emanates from God and is focused towards people. When we think about God's light and God's glory, it's not just that God's being kind of radiates off into the cosmos. And if you are lucky, you are in you might be able to catch one of these rays. That's not what glory means when it describes it in the Bible. It is a personal thing where God's, the reflection of what he wants and who he is, comes and hits you. It hits a person. It's always personal, person to person, the person of God to us. So that's one thing about glory. It emanates from God. On people, and this is the second thing, this is very important in terms of light. Glory, now listen to me, changes the person upon whom it shines. It's not maybe, it does change the persons upon whom it shines. So when glory is directed towards you and you put yourself in a position where you are looking up at this glory that is reflect when you do that it does change you now it might not change you as quickly as you would like to change but light cannot not change you i told you about i told you a number of times but it, it always hits me I, I'll be, to do a quick. My front lawn did not look good. Did not look good. I did. I did everything to it. I got one of those things. You know, you put one of those tines on your lawnmower thing that dethatches the lawn. That's the word they gave it. Dethatch the lawn. I put that thing on my lawnmower, and my neighbor came over and said, boy, Mike, you just tore up your lawn. He didn't say dethatched the lawn. He said tore up the lawn. And so I did that, and that worked. Then I, then I got one of those aerators. I said, that's what's wrong with the front lawn. So you know those things that you get from Ace, and then you run them off your yard, and then they, it looks like your yard is filled with dog poop. Some of you know exactly what happened. So anyways, I did that to the lawn. I tried to aerate it, and, and that didn't work very well. So I guess it's really funny. So I'm going downstairs, and speaking of dog poop, um, something downstairs doesn't smell quite right, and, and the... The, the upstairs toilet made a sound that's not a good sound. I flushed and it did something like this. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that one before. I haven't, no, haven't heard that thing before. So I went downstairs and there is not only water, but there's organic matter floating on the surface of the water. Things that you aren't used to seeing floating downstairs right next to the clothes, bumping up against. You understand? Yeah, yeah. Things that, that you're not prepared to see those kind of things. So, anyways, um, 
figured, well, this isn't good. And so what we had to do, call a guy who came, and he came and put the Roto-Rooter thing. And so he was he was sending this thing through, and he kept on sending it through and sending it through and sending it through and sending it through, and it wasn't clearing anything out. And he said, I don't know what we're going to do here. I don't know what the problem is. Finally, he just said, okay, we'll try it. for." And he had been there for most of the afternoon. And finally he said, let's just try I got another so many feet. And so he then he it was good this was a good noise and he says I'm through I'm through and what he discovered we had a a tree that was between the sidewalk and the front street and this tree was sending down roots right through the soil pipe and so what this thing did then this thing cleared out the pipe so that things could flow where they're supposed to flow and not where they're not. Well, anyways, so now we have this problem with this tree. And I'm thinking, okay, so then I have to call some of the tree guy comes by and he takes this tree down and, and he did that. He clears out the tree. and Wouldn't you know it? It was, I forget exactly when I did that. But then I came and I looked at my lawn. And I hadn't tore it up for a while, and I hadn't aerated it, and the lawn's coming in. You know what I discovered? The lawn lacked light. That's why it wasn't growing, because things grow when they have light. Light changes. It promotes growth in what it shines on. Could it be? The thing you need is light. You're wondering, why am I not the person God wants me to be? What would it take for me to be the person he wants me to be? You are like my lawn. When you don't have light, there's poopy things that come out of the basement. I have no idea what that means. You can apply that as you would like to apply it. But in order for growth to occur, need to focus your gaze on what God is reflecting toward you. And there is really a point because some of us do focus on the poopy things downstairs. And we think that's the way we're supposed to grow. We keep track of the problems that are deep within us and feel like if I keep being aware of them, You will not change by focusing on your behavior. That will not change you. It will not transform you. You were made to grow from the light of his smile. And it might be time for some of you to reverse your gaze and glance. Stop looking at yourself. You can't look at yourself, but focus focus on him. His commitments, his promises. You know what his commitments and promises are? Light. And as you reflect, as you gaze up at that, it changes you. That's, I think, Paul's point here. Light is transforming. The absence of light leads to the absence of transformation. Look what it says. Talk about the absence of light. Isaiah 59, it's in your worship folder. Isaiah writes, we look for light, 
but all is darkness for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. At this time in Israel's history, they were moral flatliners. Again, when you look at this description of culture, it was not a good time. Rampant depravity and immorality. And so it's going to describe now in the text, God's going to be displeased with something and appalled at something. I want you to try to distinguish between what he's displeased with and what he is appalled at. You got that? You're going to see displeased and you're going to see appalled. Try to figure out which reaction is attached to which. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm worked salvation for him. God looked and was displeased that there was no growth and there was no justice. He was displeased at that. But appalled, there was no one to intervene. The word intervene literally means encounter. It's when Joshua, when Jacob went to meet Esau, he encountered him. They met. And so what God's problem is, not that there's injustice, but there's no one who is encountering the people on God's behalf. There's no one who is reflecting the light of God's commitments to anyone. Nobody's doing that. That's what God is appalled with. He's displeased that there's no justice. He appalled that there's no one reflecting his light towards the people. That's why they can't. There really is a difference, isn't there, between the root of a problem and the fruit of a problem. I got a question. I got a question. Depravity. Is it the root of the problem? Or the fruit of the problem? You understand the difference between root and fruit? Darkness. Darkness is being unable to perceive the light that God is shining either because of not understanding or there's no one saying it. That's what God has issues with. Is darkness the root of the problem or the fruit of the problem? It goes on. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on, God put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. That's what he says, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants after them. From this time on and forever, says the Lord. The way you can know what the problem is, if somebody who knows what they're doing addresses it. And so what we have in this situation, there's depravity and there's darkness. Now what God does, he fixes the problem. And you know what he ends up doing? He fixed the darkness problem. My spirit and the words my spirit brings will be communicated to and through the Redeemer, and the Redeemer will have children. What is the problem that God addresses? The same problem that I addressed in my front lawn. Darkness problem. 
And when God said, I will make sure there's individuals who speak on my behalf, but that makes sense, doesn't it? Because light is what changes things. And in order for you to change, you've got to orient yourself to be in the light that he is reflecting towards you. If you remain in this light, it will change you. It will change you. Glory cannot not change individuals it shines upon. You say, but Mike, I'm not changed. Do you know what we have a problem? Not looking at the source of transformation. We put our hands on our spiritual pulse wondering, why do I do that? Why do I do that? And we we gaze at our behavior and then glance at God just long enough to see if he's, how angry he is with us. I've got to stop doing that. I gotta, I've really got to stop. And we got our gaze and glance upside down. It should be like this. God, I have a problem with this thing. And I, I, this is the way change occurs. Gaze and glance. Change does not happen by gaze and glance. Upside down, it's backwards. Light, light changes. God fixed the root of the problem. The difference between the root of the problem and the fruit of the problem. Darkness is the root of the problem. And depravity is the fruit of the problem. We find the same teaching in the New Testament. Look what it says in Ephesians 4. Paul writes, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. What's the fruit of the problem? The fruit of the problem is the last part of the verse. It says, having lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. What it's talking about is rampant immorality. But that's not at the, that's not the core of the problem. That's the fruit of the problem. At the root of the problem, he says they are, talks about the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. They have a thinking problem. That's the problem. God is fuzzy. The lack of seeing creates a lack of being. If you don't look at light, you cannot be a child of light. You become a child of what you look at. If you look at light, you become a child of light. You begin to act like a child of light. If you're focused on yourself, you don't become a child of light. Because you're not light, he is. problem with what's happening at the, at the place with Paul, people are throwing so many penalty flags on their behavior that they have no time to look at light. They're, they're so busy wondering, well, if I misstep this way or that way, that they, they are so busy having their attention drawn to their behavior that they can't address their belief. Of course, that only exists back then. That doesn't exist today. This is hard to remember. Jewish believers would throw penalty flags at behavior. We see the same today. We see the same thing today. Roman society 
tell you the truth, it was awful. It was decadent and depraved. There were all kinds of lousy things happening. Talk about moral flatliners. And even in that context, what Paul indicates is the source of change in a decadent place is the same as in a non. It's light that changes. Um, connection, then correction. We tend to, we hear that. And that's where it gets confused because there's expressions of light that aren't quite darkness and not quite light. And if you listen to spiritual religious programming and you get this mixed message, God loves you. And he will love you even more if you stopped doing this and started doing that. Isn't that what God says? Isn't really? Wouldn't God love you more? If you read the Bible more? Of course, you've never heard that, have you? God will love you more if you prayed more? Is that true? Is that true? We've got to be clear about this. If the light is, start acting right and I'll love you. That's not the light. Here's the light. God demonstrates his own love toward you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. If Christ died for you while you were a sinner, he won't love you more if you sin less. And you say, Mike, what would it do if I believed that? Light transforms people. Changes you. Changes the way you relate to them. You find things growing out of you. You know what you find growing out of you? Get this. Love. I'm taken care of. I can get my hand off my spiritual pulse. You get your hand off your spiritual pulse, you know what you have? You have a couple hands ready to aid other people. That's the way it works. Um, it's not God loves you if you stop being moral scumbags. Do you have things to change? Are there things you need to change? Absolutely there are. And with God, the, the connection is, well, it's connection and correction. That's the way it works. Connect with God. He shines light toward you. Take in his commitments. Gaze at them. Learn them. Know them. Look at them. Talk about what they mean. And as that happens, remain in that. Keep looking. Um, I'm going to read. Look at in the uh, your worship folder. I'm going to read an article. It just kind of sums this up as a way to summarize this, and then I'll have a point and we'll be done. Place of grace, what's our spiritual problem? I'm just going to read it through. In Paul's estimation, the cause of our spiritual ills is not that we behave badly, but that we believe badly. It's in your worship folder if you want to follow along. I'll just read it. So I tell you this, Paul writes, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's hard to overstate the importance of diagnosing a problem accurately. In order to treat a problem effectively, it is imperative that it be diagnosed properly. A clear diagnosis is the only sure route to an effective treatment. 
As the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul told his non-Jewish readers that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. He warns Gentile converts to Christianity that living like their pagan countrymen will mire them in the futility of their thinking. Paul's diagnosis is that mankind suffers primarily from a thinking problem. He warns his readers about patterns of thinking that would result in them being darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. To be darkened means to become blind to the truth. This lack of perception is not simply a matter of will not see, but a matter of cannot see. The light of understanding goes out. As a result, one is unable to grasp the truth of God, and his gospel becomes and becomes separated from God. The symptoms that spring from this spiritual separation are grave. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more sensuality. Behavior marked by lack of consideration for the rights and feelings of others, impurity. Behavior marked by unrestrained excess, riotous and excessive living, lost all sensitivity, a lost capacity to feel shame or embarrassment leading to a loss of self-control, a continual lust for more, an insatiable desire. Ultimately, one becomes caught in a vicious addictive cycle because new perversion must be sought to replace the old. When dealing with escalating immoral behavior, it is easy to forget that misbelieving leads to misbehaving. In spite of Paul's diagnosis, it is all too common for those in spiritual authority to try to get people to act differently than, rather than to think differently. This kind of approach addresses symptoms but leaves the disease untreated. God cares more about what we believe than how we behave. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. When Isaiah wrote these words, Israel suffered from a profound absence of virtue. When God looked at the moral depravity that characterized Israel at the time, he was displeased that there was no justice. There is something, however, that evokes a stronger divine reaction. When God saw that there was no one to speak to the Israelites on his behalf, he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. If we are to experience the life of God, we must be able to distinguish between the root of the problem and the fruit of the problem. Depravity isn't the root of the problem, it's the fruit of the problem. Darkness is the root of the problem. For this reason, God's strongest reaction is directed against those who misrepresent him. This is why Jesus confronted the Pharisees and teachers of the law. God understands that obeying him is rooted in knowing him. We cannot trust and obey a God we do not know. And we cannot know God unless those charged to speak on his behalf do so with clarity and accuracy. God's primary concern is not that his voice isn't obeyed, but that it isn't heard. To put on the armor of light is to put on one's thinking cap. To remain in the truth and let it transform your thinking. The Christian word is not received. Christian word is remain. Some people receive Christ as their Savior and remain in him. It can work that way. I can remember a time when I received Christ through prayer, and that was the time I began to remain in him. 
I can also say that some people receive Christ and don't remain. You can receive Christ and not remain in him, I believe. Ultimately, the thing that the Bible would encourage, and it would encourage, is remain. That's what it says. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Paul writes in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Jesse, come on up in the worship team. We're going to sing a closing song. In order to put on the armor of light, armor of light is the commitments and promises that come from God, promises he makes to you. Remain in them. Make room for them. Think about them. Gaze at them. Look at your behavior, but glance at it and gaze at his glory, and it will change you. And you become a child of light, and you find yourself acting like it. Father, thank you for light, for its transforming power and capacity. pray that you would teach us to and allow us to have more room in our heads for the things that are reflective of light, the gospel, your love for us, your plans for us. Draw us in the light that we might be children of light. I ask that you continue to allow us to be clearer about the light what it is, what you command, and what you tell us so that we could understand it and it could change us into children of light. In Jesus' name, amen.